0: Back when I was a young reporter at Sports Illustrated, about 15 of us aspiring writers had offices in a single hallway. It was referred to as the bullpen, and it was competitive turf. Everyone scratching, clawing, digging for bylines. One day, around that time, I was chatting with a woman in an AOL dating chat room, trying to get her to meet me for dinner or a drink, something. She asked what I looked like, and I told her, sorta like Tom Hanks. A few seconds later I had to go and I printed out our interaction to the hallway printer. Moments later, while walking past my office, one of my chief rivals poked his head in and said, Hey, Tom. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books, and a host of Two Writers Slinging Yang. The podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode features Mark Galley, the recently retired editor of Christianity Today, whose editorial a few weeks ago headlined, Trump should be removed from office, resulted in a huge evangelical backlash, an angry tweet from the 45th president, and it had to be the most controversial, most talked about opinion piece of 2019. This is episode number 137. Let's sling some Yang.
1: All
0: right, Mark, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. And I feel like we had some technical glitches, but we had a Christian and a Jew working together through the power of (laughs) spirituality. (laughs) There you go. And it all worked out. (laughs) A Judeo-Christian moment. Exactly. So I want to do, I want to start with this. I was thinking about this a lot. I would say you wrote a piece. We could make the argument was the most, I don't know, talked about, controversial, whatever, editorial of 2019. And it's actually interesting. Your story came out, your piece came out on the 20th anniversary of a story I wrote uh, when I was a, a writer at Sports Illustrated. I did a profile 20 years ago about a, a racist baseball player named John Rocker. And the story at the time went viral before something could go viral via social media. And I, I consider the backlash a living hell. Uh, the days that followed the attention, the constant calls, the threats, the praise. I hated every single moment of it. And that was before Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, yeah, on and on right. and on. And I wonder, so what has this been like for you? Well, it was pretty amazing. Uh, it, it certainly was,
1: uh, something I never experienced in my 30 years in journalism. So it was really weird. It was, uh, I think I was finishing up our own podcast, Christianity Today, and I got a call from uh Sarah Pulliam Bailey is a reporter with The Washington Post. Well, she's also a friend. She used to work for CT, and we've stayed in touch over the years. So she phoned me and starts asking me questions. And I just assumed she was a concerned friend. All of a sudden, I remembered, oh, no, she's a reporter for The Washington Post. I said, Sarah, is this on the record? She goes, Of course. And that was like the beginning. And then as soon as I hung up, I got an email from Emma, Emma Green at the Atlantic. And then all of a sudden I'm getting calls for emails from NPR and CNN. And I was up at 430 the next morning to greet a, uh, to do something for NPR and then greet a, a film crew from CNN. It was just, and then I went to work and on my, my desk phone, this is not an exaggeration. It rang all day long, continuously. I didn't pick it up once because I was trying to answer my phone two email addresses and my messages. Wow. For, that was just me. And then coming into the company, we have an email box that people respond to stuff. I would have to ask the, the person who answers the email. I, do, I doubt if we get more than 100 or 200 emails a day. She was getting five a minute.
0: That's crazy. <laughs>
1: So I was uh, kind of on adrenaline, just trying to figure out what who, who I should say yes to. I mean, I'm not a media person, so I didn't, when people said this is the such and such so on CNN, I, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know if that was a good show to be on or not a good show to be on. I understood NPR. I, I, I vaguely understand what CNN stands for and MSNBC stands for. Uh, so I just, it was kind of a crapshoot. I just said yes to some and Pretty soon my schedule was full and I was saying no to others. And uh, a godsend was when um, uh, Face the Nation called and they said they wanted me on and they said they wanted an exclusive. I said, what does that mean? <laughs> he says, basically, no, no more interviews from this point on. And I said, well, this was middle of Friday. I said, well, I already have things scheduled for the evening. And they said, okay, that's fine. But then that, that gave me an excuse to say no to everything on Saturday. So it was great. And in terms of uh, reactions, uh, I'm sure I, you you know exactly what I mean when the just a lot of hate-filled stuff, uh, uh, an immediate threat on my home. I mean that night it was uh, you're dangerous. I'm coming right over type of call, which a little unnerving when you hear receive it for the first time. A death a death threat for Christmas Day. Uh, and then just, you know, the language. I'm hoping these people who use this language weren't Christians because it was, I was compared to fecal matter and all sorts of strange and odd things that were just horrible. But I will say the, 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 the positive side was apparently on what we got at the office was like three to one against. And then it started to get closer to 50 50. But my personal email was like nine to one four, so that kept me oh yeah. buoyed. You know, it kept me okay. There are a lot of people that are really appreciating this, and uh, so that kept me
0: my spirits up. I've never actually gotten a direct death threat. I've had threats from writing. I've had people say I'm going to punch you in the face and blah blah blah. But I don't think I've heard anyone say I'm going to kill you or I'm going to come to your house. How does one digest that? Well, there's you know there's
1: two things going on in your brain. One is the likelihood of that happening is pretty slim. You know you know that rationally as a person, uh, especially when they tell you when they're going to do it and where they're going to do it. You know, if they're really interested in bumping you off, they're not going to do that. Uh, they're just trying to make you feel fearful. And so I, I took the appropriate steps. I called the police and they, they responded by sending a p- patrol car around my house for a couple weeks. I guess they're still doing it. And my wife and I talked about it briefly, about what precautions, because we were going to have my uh, uh, grandchildren over with their parents. And uh, so we just said, OK, if something starts banging on the door, starts yelling outside, this is what we're going to do. Send the kids upstairs. Call 911. <laughs> you know, I'm a sports shooter. I shoot uh, clay pigeons and uh, sporting clays and that sort of thing. So I said, I just got my shotgun ready and put it in a place where no one could get to it but me. And um, worst case scenario, I was ready for someone who wanted to do something really, really awful. But I actually didn't think about it much the rest of the day. I looked outside every once in a while and just made sure no, no nobody strange to doing something weird in our neighborhood. But the rational part of me took over, for the most part, thinking. And I was just cautious. I mean, I have a, fortunately, I have a friend down the street. He, he used to work for the Secret Service. So I said, uh, Gustav, help me here. <laughs> He said, okay, here's what you just need to do and take precautions. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll have your back. I'll be looking in the neighborhood as well. And so uh, I wasn't viscerally worried, but every once in a while, the thought would come in your head and I'd, I'd get out of my chair. I'd kind of look around and then I'd go back and sit down.
0: It is crazy that this is happening to the, well, now former, but editor of Christianity Today. Like, yeah. I could, you could, you could say, name the writer, from this publication who received lots of death threats. And I think I would put Mad Magazine, Boy's Life, every conceivable <laughs> publication, Good Housekeeping, ahead of the editor of Christianity Today. It is just, so I am fascinated. You you sit down to write it. Are you aware, as you are writing something, the weight it carries? No, and this, uh I don't know if you
1: chalk this up to just my naivete or what, but when I finish the piece, actually coming into the piece uh, your listeners will not know kind of a typical Mark Galley editorial uh, for since the election of Donald Trump and since I knew the evangelical community was split over this pretty fiercely I felt one of my jobs was to help the two sides of our movement to try to at least listen to one another and talk to one another civilly and so I've been working I mean I've done many an editorial on this in which I have in fact mentioned Trump's Immoral behavior, but also tried to understand why some of my brothers and sisters in the movement would vote for him anyway. And let's try to, let's try to listen to one another. Let's try to figure this thing out. Uh, so I, I, I I sat down when I walked in the office that morning. I wasn't even sure I wanted to do an editorial on the impeachment. Uh, I checked with one of my editors whose opinion I trust deeply. I said, do you, do you think we really should do this? uh, editorial? And he said, definitely, we need definitely do something. So I took a sigh, a sigh, cause I'd been, it's my last month at the company, uh, as, as editor in chief. And I, I just took a sigh thinking, ah, I didn't really want to write a controversial editorial before I left. So, all right, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to, that's what I'm paid for. So, and I'm still on duty. So let's do it. But I sat down to do a typical Mark Galley on the one hand, on the other. Let's let mm-hmm. the process work itself through. Let's listen to one another, be charitable toward one another. And there was something about, the impeachment hearings itself and kind of my little personal journey over the previous two weeks that I just said, no, that doesn't work anymore. That just doesn't work anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore now. And I just sat down and wrote what I wrote pretty much one draft with some minor corrections, sent it off to the, to my friend who's a, who's editing I trust deeply, sent it to the president because I knew it would be controversial. Didn't know that would, I didn't have any idea it would be this that it would go this wild. I knew, you know, for example, a typical day at Christianity Today, we might have three to 500 people on our website looking at our stuff. If, a, if an article goes viral, really viral, and we're really excited that it's gone viral, we might have four or 5,000 people on our website at any given moment. Well, we had, when, after the site crashed and we got it up, we had fifteen to 17,000 people on our site for hours. And it was like, what in the heck happened here? <laughs> right. It's <That's> amazing. <laughs> so no, I did not expect, I I knew I wanted to speak kind of frankly and uh, a little more forcefully than I normally do. Didn't want to hedge my bets anymore. Wanted to be take into account the opinion I was essentially attacking, which I did in a couple paragraphs, but not spend a lot of time there. And then just drive home the point I was trying to make. And I knew, and I figured it was December 19th. People are Christmas shopping. There's going to be a few people to read it. Everyone else is getting ready for Christmas. (laughs) There you go. It
0: shows you how, how prescient I was. Not at all. In a way, I love this happen. Like I love finding writers I'm unfamiliar with. And I'm, you know, I'm this agnostic, sort of atheistic, uh, lagging Jew in Southern California who curses too much and blah, blah, blah. And, and I ended up reading your piece. And you're just a beautiful writer. And this is, I feel like one thing that's gone, you know, obviously it goes overlooked, but is just how well done this column is and how beautifully written it is. And it's very artful. And I just want to real quick, you wrote, um, we have reserved judgment on Mr. Trump for years now. Some have criticized us for our reserve. But when it comes to condemning the behavior of another, patient charity must come first. So we have done our best to give evangelical Trump supporters their due to try to understand their point of view to see the prudential nature of so many political decisions they have made regarding Mr. Trump. To use an old cliche, it's time to call a spade a spade, to say that no matter how many hands we win in this political poker game, we are playing with a stacked deck of gross immorality and ethical incompetence. And just when we think it's time to push all our chips to the center of the table, that's when the whole game will come crashing down. It will crash down on the reputation of evangelical religion and on the world's understanding of the gospel and will come crashing down on a nation of men and women whose welfare is also our concern. First of all, sincerely, that is so beautifully written. I I, I can't think of anyone who could have written that better than you did right there. Well, thank um, you very much. I think about this all the time. I swear again, as a, as a, as a bad Jew, I feel like I know a lot of people who are open to faith, but for one way or another kind of resist faith. Maybe they don't feel it fully. Maybe their family isn't religious, whatever the reason. And the one thing I see a lot of is people see evangelical Christians flocking to Donald Trump and sort of overlooking whatever him paying off a porn star he had, you know, relations with her, him calling women fat, calling women ugly, whatever the case. And it's hard for people to want to join a movement when they see, see people so willing to, it seems, set aside their core principles in the name of politics. And is that sort of the the driving motivation that led you to this point yeah well i think the thing that flipped for me well let me back up and say
1: i'm still thinking about what i wrote uh that day because it as i just noted it's not my typical mm-hmm. approach to to the way i do things and so i think i'm going to be thinking about this for a few months as to what what exactly clicked in me that made me go <laughs> uh You'll, yeah, to hell with it, as they yeah. say. Uh, we're just going to say what needs to be said right now. Uh, but on the on on the kind of the surface intellectual level, I what I had become increasingly bothered by what was being revealed in the impeachment hearings. I mean, I had tried to follow the Mueller hearings, and I couldn't make head nor tails of them, and I couldn't figure out what was legal, moral, immoral, illegal. It just didn't make any sense to me. But in the impeachment hearings, it seemed to me pretty clear that. Trump was guilty of trying to manipulate the leader of a foreign nation for his own personal political gain to to trash a political opponent or relative of a political opponent. It just seemed pretty obvious to me, and I was waiting. In fact, I was so confident that this was absolutely clear, I started thinking, you know, maybe we better make some adjustments in our investments because I think the stock market's going to start to dip now because Trump's presidency is going to be questioned. Not a single Republican came forward and said, this is a problem. Not a single conservative evangelical came forward and said, this is a problem. And when I talk to my conservative friends, because I have a few that I've been corresponding with over the years, just to make sure I understand what they think and why they think it. And this one guy says, oh, that's all a hoax. The Democrats are making this all, all this stuff up. They're just out to get them. None of this is true. And I, I talked to two or three other friends like that. And I was stunned. I was just absolutely stunned. And I think that kind of came to a head that morning when I wrote the editorial. It was like, nobody but, you know, it just, uh, maybe I'm naive, but it just seemed so unambiguous to me what was going on. And that both the Republicans and my personal concern would be my evangelical brothers and sisters were not willing to open their eyes. And it was like, all right, <laughs>
0: That's that's it for me. How do you explain it? You got Mike Pence right there. Mike Pence, if nothing else, seems authentically religious and, and a follower of Jesus and tries his best to be, you know, Christian and blah, blah, blah. I don't get it. So I do try to read, although I'm, I'm way behind, I, I do try to read uh, critical emails
1: just to see what if it's an, if there's an argument there, you know, or if there's a statement that needs to be thought about. And the thing I'm just stunned at is the number of people who will say. Okay, so first of all, evangelicals that, uh, I'm listening to are just profoundly pro-life, and they feel like with his appointment of judges, he's kind of, uh, helped that cause tremendously. They really feel like they are a persecuted, increasingly persecuted minority in the United States. I actually don't think they're correct about that. I think there's a lot of, uh, stuff that goes on that, uh, Christians get under the thumb of one uh, college administrator or another. But eventually, when those things go through the courts, the Christians usually win. I mean, or any religious group usually wins. That right. is to say, they, they, they retain their rights. Now they have to go through a few more steps now to retain their rights, but uh, I don't know of any instance in, in which Christians are actually prevented from living the lives that they feel they're called to live here. But they perceive that they're being persecuted here and that their faith is being pulled out from under their rug, and they feel like Trump's helping with that, that he's defending, on Israel's huge. Israel is act so just so huge in the mind of uh, conservative evangelicals, especially. It is God's chosen nation. It, it has to do with end times prophecies. It has to do with a lot of stuff going on. So they'll say, he is doing all this great. He's doing more for us than any of their recent president has. Again, that's, a, that's actually a statement that's subject to disagreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I won't go into that here. But they believe that pro- profoundly. So when they see his moral failings, they, their, their approach is one of three things. Well, one is, we heard he became a Christian right before the, during the election. And of course he's a new Christian. He's still kind of working out his faith and he's learning to grow in his faith and we're going to give him some patience. The second line is, well, we, di- we didn't, we're not electing a pastor in chief. We're electing a president in chief and we need someone who's strong and needs to kick those liberals in the butt is essentially what the feeling is there. There's such a deep resentment about the drift, the liberal drift of culture, that they just love Trump as his champion, and they they actually relish his his mocking and his his uh, degrading liberals of one sort or another. Uh, and they just say they feel like there's this satisfying sense of revenge. They don't seem to recognize that that's sub-Christian, but they still love it. And then the third thing they say, which is the most interesting to me, is, you know, he has a few rough edges, <laughs> but otherwise he's a he's doing good for the world. And it's that rough edges that they. I just wrote a piece that I I, I sent to the Guardian. I I don't know actually they're going to publish it. I mean they act they asked me for it, mm-hmm. but with the news of Iran and everything, I think it's not going to be very timely. But the argument I tried I tried to say in that piece. Here we have all these Bible verses about how powerful the tongue is and how destructive it can be and how, uh, you know, in, in the biblical, the arc of the biblical story, the Word, the Word is a really important thing. It is by the Word that God creates the world. It is the Word, Jesus Christ, who comes to us to redeem us. It is through the Word that we preach the good news and uh, invite people to salvation. It is through the Word that something, you know, communities can be absolutely destroyed and they don't seem to remember that that's a very important theme all through Scripture. No, these are just some rough edges. And so I tried to make an argument, a real quick argument. The reason why Donald Trump's contempt of people he disagrees with is such a problem is because if as the, as our culture becomes increasingly used to the language of contempt, it won't be long before the things that we support, like the 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 unborn child, will be
0: will start to be treated with contempt. Everybody will be treated with contempt. I think something that's been lost and that's really sad is I've had many, many great conversations sitting down with people over whatever, a soda, a beer, whatever, and talking about people I disagree with on 95% of issues and just having really good conversations, understanding where they come from. And I can be pro-choice and you can be pro-life, but we can talk about it and at least understand where we come from. And I feel like, that has been largely lost. You know, you don't have to hate someone because they disagree with you, and someone isn't evil because they disagree with you. And someone who's pro-life is not evil because I don't agree with that. I just think we've lost that, and it's really depressing. It it really is. I mean, uh, many people complain about the snowflakes,
1: especially in the uh, evangelical community and um, the conservative community, about the snowflakes on college campuses. They can't stand hearing another point of view, and they've got to be they've got to have safe spaces. So we mock that all the time in our private mm-hmm. conversations. Uh well, it, it, it has occurred to me that uh evangelicals, that there's a large, large number of them that are snowflakes, given the email we've received. And, oh, I've been listening, I've been reading and uh, subscribing to Christianity Today for 20 years. I'm canceling my subscription, and I'm destroying <laughs> all my old copies. And I'm thinking, right. what? <laughs> One editorial? One editorial, and you can't, you got to plug your ears and go, la, 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 la. But, I mean, that has been said, Thousands of times, actually. We've lost by a few thousand subscriptions. Now, the good side we can talk about later. We've actually gained more subscriptions than yeah. we've lost. But the ones we've lost, that, that's what it boils down to. I cannot stand listening to another point of view and I'm going to subscribe or worse, which you probably endured. Uh, uh, maybe not in your world, but in my world, I was, I'm friends of Satan. I am demonic. I'm the Antichrist. So you get hundreds of those. So that when you get one or two people, like somebody on Twitter said, Mark, I really disagree with your editorial. I just think it's wrong in so many ways. But I've followed your writing for years, and I continue to want to follow you because I respect you. Right. It just seems like that's that should not be heroic. Right. That should be normal. And yet, given our time, I wrote him immediately because I wasn't writing anybody. I couldn't respond to anybody. I just said, thank you. Thank you for saying that two adult human beings can disagree about stuff something that's really important and still stay in conversation
0: the guy's like uh what did i do <laughs> What's exactly <the> video? Right. <laughs> before we continue with two writers slinging yang a quick word from our sponsor hey this is jeff perlman and i'm here with my daughter casey who's quite sad christmas is over
1: christmas is over oh come on i mean i'm jewish so how would i know We never have a treat, we never sing carols. we barely have candy canes, plus Santa is just nonsense. How do people believe that crap?
0: I guess that's a fair point.
1: Hanukkah Harry on the other hand. What? Hanukkah Harry. He lives in Brooklyn. Eats lots of knishes, says oi oi oi, and brings me all my favorite t-shirts, hats, and jerseys. From 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise.
0: How do you know it's not just me going to 503-sports.com and buying all that stuff?
1: Duh, dad. You don't even like niches.
0: I had a book come out two years ago about, um, there was an old football league called the United States Football League, and Donald Trump owned a team in the league. And um, oh, he could, didn't he wound up ruining the USFL. He owned a team called the New Jersey Generals. And all I wanted, more than anything in the world, was Donald Trump to tweet angrily at me when the book was coming out. I mean, I tried goading. I tried, (laughs) I was tweeting at him. Here's a guy who ruined the league. Hey, Trump, you ruined the league. There you go. And December 20th, 2019, 412, a 412 AM, which is so bizarre, a far left magazine or very quote unquote progressive as some would call it, which has been doing poorly and hasn't been involved with the Billy Graham family for many years. Christianity today Knows nothing about reading a perfect transcript of a routine phone call, and would rather have a radical left non-believer who wants to take your religion and your guns than Donald Trump as your president. No president has done more for the evangelical community, and it's not even close. You'll not get anything from those Dems on stage. I won't be reading ET again. He showed you. <laughs> what the heck is ET? Or did they screw? Did he screw that up? Or is that from the Daily he screwed News? Screwed that up. Yeah.
1: There was a magazine called E.T. Entertainment Tonight. I commented after that that, well, at least uh Mr. Trump and I agree on that. I don't read Entertainment Tonight either anymore. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: How do you feel about the tweet?
1: Well, on the one hand, on a very personal note, my daughter uh had had been watching the, the my stuff on NPR and CNN. And, and like she likes to do to her dad, she likes to mock me a little bit, even though she's mm. proud of me. She says, dad, all well and good that you're on NPR and CNN, but you're not going to be. You will not have made it until Donald Trump sends out a tweet against you, and that happened about two hours later. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> but it was it was a typical it it was actually a perfect illustration of what I was trying to say in the editorial. I mean it was it was uh there were a couple things in there that were true. That is to say, Billy Graham hasn't been closely associated with the magazine for twenty years. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh there were a failing magazine, that's not true. There were progressive and liberal, that's not true. That because we question his character, we tend to favor the Democrat, or that I'm, I'm I want to support a Democratic candidate. Not true. You know, it's just full of half truths, lies, and innuendos, and failure. Yeah, his one of his favorite. I did some research in getting ready for this Guardian article. That so, all right. Let's just see if I can find. You uh, know, New York Times did a good job of having a whole website devoted to his tweets over the last few years. And one of his favorite things is, uh, his whole worldview is framed by success and failure. Yes. And so to call someone a failure is about one of the worst things. And then someone who has a low IQ. So a low IQ and a failure. And he didn't call, accuse me of a low IQ. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. Right. (laughs) But he did consider the magazine a failure, which it isn't by any stretch of the imagination, but that's about, you know, the most insulting thing he can think of to say.
0: There is no chance. That he ever read Christianity Today before this happened. I promise you there's no oh, exactly. way Donald Trump was like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to open up my Christianity today. See today, see what's going on. There's no, he does that all the time. I'm never going to blank, never going to blank. I
1: mean, you know, it was funny. Franklin Graham, who one would think might check into CT once in a while, mm-hmm. wrote a blistering uh, tweet as well, saying how awful it was and how off base we were. But he was questioned later, and I, this is secondhand, so I'd I'd want to get confirmation on this. But it's not untypical in our day and age. He said, "Actually, I never did read the
0: uh, the editorial. I just read the headline." Oh my god, <laughs> that's amazing. That's a very um, that's a very sports writer thing to go through, especially back in the '90s when newspapers you'd have some baseball player furious with you over something you wrote, and then someone would say, "Well, what made you bad, mad about it?" And the ball player would inevitably say, "Well, I didn't actually read it, but my agent told me." It was bad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I read a daily news piece and it was very misleading. I don't know if you saw this. It, it, it ran on January 2nd Christianity today, editor leaving post after anti-Trump editorial. And I feel like there was this perception out there. The editorial sent you running like the reaction to the, and you had plans oh, to retire yeah. months ahead of time where people like, Oh, I see you're running. Like, was that a mocking point?
1: Well, either that, or uh, some people thought I was forced out and, Neither of those things are true. Now, I've been planning it months in advance, and and people say, "Well, you're doing it because you know you're you can leave now, and no one's going to be able to fire you." And uh, I can understand why they would think that. I can see that. I don't want to blame them for thinking that. It's a pretty it seems pretty logical that I'm saving my guns for the very end. But to be uh just to be frank, I really don't think in those terms. In fact, I've been working really hard with my new president and the incoming editor in chief. To smooth the way for them. I don't want to, I don't want to present ripples. I want the transition to go smoothly as I leave. The deal was, I, and I tend to be kind of a very, um, presentist person. I think about what's, what is my responsibility right now? What is it that I need to say right now? If I'm writing something and what's the best way I can say it? And that's all I was thinking about that morning. I wasn't thinking about my retirement. I wasn't thinking about, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to show them. Uh, it was just my job as editor in chief. We need to respond to the impeachment hearings. This is what I think we need to say. That's it. See, yeah. people I've also been asked you were well, you worried about losing subscriptions. This tells you why I'm a writer and not a marketer. It never occurred to me that we would lose subscriptions or gain subscriptions. It, it never even that wasn't a thought that went through my head. There are other people in the building that worry about that stuff and I'm thankful that they are, but when I write, I don't I don't think in those terms. I just don't. That's the real fact of the matter, but I can I can understand why people would think otherwise.
0: You were the editor for uh, the Editor in Chief for 7 years uh, before your recent retirement. Did Christianity today face the same challenges that all of media is facing now? Did you see in your 7 years as editor, did you see a lot of sort of um did you did, did the publication have to make a lot of adjustments to modern times?
1: It was kind of scary there for a while. I mean, we uh we had 11 different magazines under our brand at one, in the late 90s. Uh, we had, you know, 150,000 subscribers for CT, and then we had lots of the other magazines had subscriptions anywhere from 75,000 to 300,000. We had 150 people on staff. And then between the recession and then the media revolution, we're down to about 60 or 70 employees. Uh, we're down to one magazine and a few, a few other products. You know, the irony of the age is, uh, we only have, uh, so we, now we have 80,000 subscribers, so although all that was say. Our subscriptions jumped by over ten percent uh, altogether, so we're up to ninety thousand now. But you know, our internet reach is just astounding. It's like we five million uh, on a normal month. I don't know what it's going to be for this month, but a normal month we have five million unique visitors to our site. So on the one hand, we have fewer magazines, but we also ha- we seem to have more reach. But there was a period there where we were losing, you know, for a magazine for a company that. total budget is 15 million we were losing a million a year for a couple years there and fortunately because of the conservative uh uh, economics of the leadership we had we had money to to lean on and we you know got that down to you know 400,000 the next year and then i mean 400,000 in the red the next year and then 200,000 in the red and then we a couple years ago we started breaking even again
0: it's interesting some you know, in the mainstream media, it seems like some publications have really figured it out. It seems like The New York Times has figured it out. The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal have figured it out. I mean, there was a piece in The New York Times, I think last week, about how one in five newspapers have closed uh, over the past decade in America. Do you feel like there's a solution to this all?
1: Well, I think there's a couple solutions. I've appreciated what the the Tribune has, the Chicago Tribune has done. Pretty much any major daily up to this point, my impression was that they were trying to, in a sense, compete with the New York Times or the Washington Post. So their front page often tended to be international news or national news. And I think that's a mistake nowadays. I think we're not going to be, no no local paper, even as big of a uh, paper as the Chicago Tribune, is going to be able to compete with the New York Times or the Washington Post on those topics. What the Washington Post and the New York Times can't, can't compete with with the Chicago Tribune is Chicago News. And I've noticed that, that that news has slowly but surely made its, way, made its way to the front page and the opening section. And then there's a section on national news after that. I think right. that's what makes the Tribune really interesting now. And my one of the reasons my wife and I subscribe to it. The other advantage that a magazine like Christianity Today has is the same one that NPR has. And that is, I do think it's a tremendous, if you're a non-profit, you do now have another source of income that you didn't we were never we never banked on our non-profit status never asked for donations never went out on fundraisers uh we tried to make our ministry operate on a you know profit loss basis like every other business but since the recession we've just thought you know I, this we're not going to make it without having people donate to us so in some sense uh the the outlets that have a non-profit status kind of have an advantage in in, in some ways
0: you were a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor in your past life. You were, Obviously, you, you not only studied religion, but you're you you a devout, devoutly religious person. And I wonder, when you look around sort of the world now, as, as an example, the fires destroying Australia, uh, wars in different places, like really, really bad stuff going on in the world. Is it ever hard to maintain faith? It is hard for a lot of people to maintain
1: faith. I will say, for whatever reason, and I've, I've given this some thought. Uh, the question of how, how come there is evil? How can a good God who is all powerful allow so much evil in the world? That is the pressing philosophical question of our age. If you're a, if you're a religious person, no question mm-hmm. about it. For some reason, it has never bothered me. Never, never lost sleep over it. Very close friends. Yes, they've wrestled with it. It's been very difficult for them. Uh, I think my bottom line is, you know, from, perspective of christian theology what happened on the cross when christ died on the cross two things happened god in a sense judged sin for what it was judged sin and evil and placed it on the back of christ and showed that this is what evil deserves it deserves to die it deserves to go into extinction the sins of people that it to the degree they need to be punished they have been punished god is a just god Uh, even though he took it upon himself to make this happen. And at the same time, God is a merciful God because instead of inflicting his judgment on all of us, he's inflicted it on himself in some sense, and that we have an opportunity now to participate in his life, and his life-giving life, so to speak. So at that moment, from the perspective of Christian theology, we see in a concrete historical moment that God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And uh, whether you buy that argument or not, that is, that's kind of what I, I keep going back to. I don't understand how, why this is happening the way it does. I don't know why God has taken so long and bringing in his kingdom that he's promised, but this much I do know. I know that God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. He's more just than I am and he's more, per- he's more merciful than I am. So. I can only assume that whatever is going on will work itself out in some way that will make, I don't know if it will make sense to us eventually, but so that's kind of how I approach it. But I will, I will acknowledge that it's uh, maybe I'm just constitutionally incapable of really taking that question seriously or not, but that's how I approach it.
0: You wrote something in 2002. I was digging through old articles. You wrote, um, I feel sorry for those people who don't think there's anything greater than themselves. It must feel like a lonely and frightening world. And it's interesting because I don't really, I would say I probably gun the head, don't believe in God. And I actually do think in many ways, it's a lonely and frightening world. But I think the problem is you can't believe something just because you want to believe it. You know, like people say, well, why don't you just believe it's easier? Just believe. And then if there is a heaven or blah, 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 then you'll be okay because you believe. Am I wrong here? Like, I could believe, in. I think Santa Claus is a wonderful idea, but I simply don't believe there's a person called Santa Claus. So do we, do we oversimplify the idea of believing? The way the word believe is used in that sense is,
1: uh, is a fairly simplistic notion. You're absolutely right about that. It's, uh, that type of belief, you cannot conjure up. You cannot just say, I'm going to start believing X. Although I will say I have met a number of people who said they were they were in a period of doubt or, or agnosticism and they just decided to act as if uh, a loving and just and merciful god was in charge of the universe. And uh they came, you know, they th- that led them to a point of faith, but I I don't think it was they talked themselves into it. From my perspective, basically they started thinking and believing something something that was actually true about the universe. And what they found was as they lived their life, assuming that that was true, they began to see more and more signs that maybe it was, maybe it is true. <laughs> maybe I ought to give myself to that. One of the things I think uh, most, and you you sound like you're more thoughtful than a lot of people, so this may not apply to you, but a lot of people don't actually look at the assumptions upon which they have grounded their faith or non-faith. Bob Dylan has an old uh, old song for that brief period when he was a Christian. <laughs> And he ca- talked about, you gotta serve somebody. It may be de- the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. And the notion nowadays that we can, we actually are independent of a worldview or a philosophy or a way of thinking, and we're independently charting our own course. I think as a, we're lying to ourselves when we think that we are, when we wake up every day, we are buying into someone's story about the universe and we are giving our lives to it. And we are making decisions based upon it, and we are living our lives in the middle of this story. Uh, but we don't necessarily stop and question: Is that arc of that story really the truest way to look at the universe? So, to me, the issue is: What is the arc of the story that any individual is has given himself or herself to? And you know, my my approach as a Christian would be to ask them is that really the best way to understand the arc of the universe?
0: Does that makes sense? Am I just, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, I do understand what you're saying.
1: I will, I will say one thing that's interesting about this, uh, this whole incident uh, when it comes to relating to just personal faith. Mm-hmm. We have been when we, I mean, we at the office and me and my personal email and among friends, uh, the number of people who have said, you know, I walked away from the faith a long time ago, or I am an agnostic or an atheist, or I am just I'm not a believer, and yet your editorial has given me pause. Wow. Where did that come from? And I think my preliminary thinking is that even people who don't let's say let's say specifically evangelicals don't believe in the the whole range of evangelical opinions about this, that and the other thing they are still looking to evangelicals, among others, for moral leadership and moral consistency. And what what turns them off about the evangelicals who support Trump is there's such a disconnect that they've lost respect for not only those people, they now begin to lose respect for Christianity or evangelical Christianity.
0: Oh, and yeah. I think
1: we have a responsibility, even if we're not going to end up converting the whole world, we still have a responsibility to agnostic atheists and people who have left the faith because they want to at least look at us and say, I don't agree with them, but at least they're consistent, they stick to their principles, and they're willing to sacrifice for them.
0: I agree with everything you just said, and I truly believe, and this is as an outsider looking in, again, as a Jewish guy, blah, 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 I think the damage that is being done to Christianity long-term is profound here. There are people like me, I've almost looked to people of faith to carry themselves a certain way, and maybe that sounds weird, or at least, you know, I don't know, I'm always surprised when someone who's very faithful curses, as dumb as that sounds, or someone who's very faithful sort of does something, and I mean, this guy ran a charity and was using the donations to buy himself stuff. You know, this guy lied about helping at ground zero and then lied about making a donation to the nine 11 fund. This guy had sex with a sex worker 10 days after the birth of his son and then paid her hush money. Like, I don't know how many of these things have to come up before evangelicals say, wait, you know what? This is, this is just a little too far, but I just don't think it's going to happen. And it actually hurts me as an outsider. That's really interesting. Yeah.
1: That corresponds with a lot of the, uh, the the implicit the implicit affirmation we're getting from a lot of these other emails I was talking about so it's a it's a really interesting moment it's it's uh, whatever I don't, I'm not quite sure how to process it still
0: but it's a fact on the ground yeah well um, I just want to say Mark you made me a fan of your writing and I think you writing that whether you see it or not hopefully you do was a really important moment in speaking up for people who probably needed a voice so I I really applaud you for that well thank um, you very much. I want to thank today's guest, Mark Galley, for joining me on Two Riders and Yang. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Galley, and visit him at markgalley.com. One can listen to Two Riders and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.